I wonder if anyone here has had a bad day in the recent past. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder if some of you have just had one of those times when whatever you've done during the day, it seems to have gone wrong. Or perhaps you've had one of those days where you've had difficult situations, maybe at work, maybe with the family. Maybe it's the sort of day when you just got up and you wish you hadn't. I guess most of us have days like that at one time or another. Some of the days are quite clearly bad. And I've got some examples here from people who had some very bad days. After the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska, the cost of cleaning up some of the seals there was about $80,000. That's a lot of them. They cleaned up some of them and had this great release of a couple of seals back into the wild. And so they did that, and within about 10 minutes, in full view of all the well-wishers, two seals were eaten by killer whales. Not a good day. Take the woman who came home to find her husband in some sort of dancing frenzy in the kitchen, the wire that appeared to be going from space. She thought, what can I do? And so she picked up a piece of wood and bashed his arm to try and break the current, breaking his arm in two pieces. Until that moment, people were actually listening to him. <laughs> Take the Iraqi terrorist, Kay Banajet, who decided to send a letter bomb, but unfortunately didn't have enough postage. And it was marked return to sender. And it returned to sender, and he forgot what was in it and opened it. A bad day for him, for certain. Bad days come and they happen to all of us. As we continue to look at lessons from women in the Bible, and today we're going to look at Esther, we're going to see that for her, there was a bad day about to happen. That's where we're going to join the story. But before we do, I'm going to give a little bit of background. Imagine it's the year about 480 BC. And we are at a time when, a hundred years previously, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had conquered the nation of Israel. And having done that, he had a policy of sort of divide and rule. In other words, you took people from the conquered nation and you relocated them throughout your empire. The reason for doing this was so that what could happen would be that you would get rid of any chance of nationalism because you wouldn't have big groups of people living in their own country from that nationality might rally against you. Then the Babylonian Empire fell and the Persian Empire came along. And this is where we join the story in about the year 480, as I said. And I think the story of Esther, if you've never read it, it's a wonderful story. It's one of those stories, I think, quite easily. Well, it has been made into a film, it's been made into a book. I sometimes think, you know, it's got everything that we would need for around Christmas time, having a pantomime. Because it's got your heroes and it's got your villains. It's got the sort of character you want to say, look behind you to. Let me introduce you to the characters in this story. First character is King Xerxes, the great king of the Persian Empire. Great man, 
a man who was married to a woman named Vashti, a beautiful woman. But uh, one day he was holding a party, and at that party he asked his wife Vashti to come to him. She didn't. She refused. And that left the king very angry. And um, worse than that, all his officials, when he consulted them, said, look, you've got to be careful here because if everyone in the empire hears about this, that your wife has not obeyed you, then we could have this breaking out throughout the empire. Imagine that. A whole load of women not obeying their husbands. Complete anarchy. I speak tongue-in-cheek, just in case anyone is going to um, stone me afterwards. Anyway, Vashti was banished. And the king wasn't happy without a queen for very long. And in time, he marries Esther. Come back to Mordecai in a minute. He marries Esther, a beautiful Jew. See, I said that... um, the Jews were relocated. And by the time we come to this part of the story, some of the Jews have been able to return to their home nation. But some have stayed where they are because, well, quite frankly, they've been born and brought up in that area. That's home to them, more home than the nation of Israel would have been. So they stayed there. Mordecai and Esther, two of the Jews who stayed. Esther's an orphan. Mordecai is her cousin. Mordecai has more or less adopted Esther as his daughter. Mordecai is an official in the king's court. He's part of the administration team. He's very loyal to the king. Now, having introduced those three characters, we come to the villain of the story, the man. The man is the king's top official. And really, to be honest, he's sort of a a power-seeking, egotistical man. Because he wants everyone in the nation to bow down before him. And Mordecai refuses And Haman is very angry that anyone would not bow down to him. And so what he does is he tricks, manipulates the king into signing a decree that will lead to the Jews being killed. Nobody knows that Esther is a Jew. She is. So we join the story when Mordecai has heard about this. And Andy is going to read for us. It's from Esther chapter 4. And we're reading the first 17 verses. If you wish to follow it, you can find it on page 498 of the Old Testament sections. Page 498, Esther chapter 4, reading verses 1 to 17. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes in anguish. Then he dressed in sackcloth and covered his head with ashes and walked through the city, wailing loudly and bitterly, until he came to the entrance of the palace. He didn't go in because no one wearing sackcloth was allowed inside. Throughout all the provinces, wherever the king's proclamation was made known, there was a loud mourning among the Jews. They fasted, wept and wailed, and most of them put on sackcloth and lay in ashes. When Esther's servant girls and eunuchs told her what Mordecai was doing, she was deeply disturbed. She sent Mordecai some clothes to put on instead of the sackcloth but he wouldn't accept them. Then she called Havach, one of the palace eunuchs, appointed as her servant by the king, and told him to go to Mordecai and find out what was happening and why. Havach went to Mordecai in the city square at the entrance of the palace. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him and just how much money Haman had promised to put into the royal treasury if all the Jews were killed. 
He gave Hadash a copy of the proclamation that had been issued in Susa, ordering the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai asked him to take it to Esther, explain the situation to her, and ask her to go and plead with the king and beg to have mercy on her people. Hadash did this, and Esther gave him this message to take back to Mordecai. If anyone, man or woman, goes to the inner courtyard and sees the king without being summoned, that person must die. That is the law. Everyone from the king's advisers to the people in the provinces know that. There is only one way to get round this law. If the king holds out his gold scepter to someone, then that person's life is spared. But if it's been a month since the king sent for me, when Mordecai received Esther's message, he sent her this warning. Don't imagine that you are safer than any other Jew just because you are in the royal palace. If you keep quiet, if you keep quiet at a time like this, help will come from heaven to the Jews and they will be saved, but you will die and your father's family will come to an end. Yet, who knows, maybe it is for a time like this that you were made queen. Esther sent Mordecai this reply. Go and gather all the Jews in Susa together. Hold a fast and pray for me. Don't eat or drink anything for the three days and nights. My servant girls and I will be doing the same. After that, I'll go to the king, even though it is against the law. If I must die for doing it, I will die. Mordecai then left and did everything that Esther had told him to do. Thank you. You see what I mean about saying it was a bad day for Esther and all the Jews. What could be worse than expecting to be killed? Well, the thing was, for Esther, it did get a little bit worse than that because she was in a position to do something about it. She was going to be asked to go before the king to risk her life. And we have these wonderful words that come through. Wonderful words, but very challenging words that come to Esther. Who knows? Maybe it was for a time like this that you were made queen. Maybe it was for a time like this that you were made queen. Very difficult situation for her. A bad day. But maybe... Maybe she was in the place that God wanted her to be at this particular time. And this is what I want to think about this morning. This idea that we have bad days, we have bad times. But maybe, just maybe, it was for a time like this that God has placed us in that particular situation. And I think there are a number of lessons that we see from the life of Esther about how to deal with difficult situations that are very applicable for us today should we meet, or should I say, when we meet, difficult times. The first of them is this. You can't always avoid difficult situations. Yet nobody knew that Esther was a Jew. Maybe she would have thought, well, I'll be all right. I'm the wife of the king. Surely, surely, I will be safe. 
nobody's going to risk trying to kill me. But Mordecai says to her, don't imagine that you are safer than any other Jew just because you are in the royal palaces. The reality was that somebody would have discovered that she was a Jew. The reality was that somebody would have pointed that out. The reality was she would have ended up being killed. That was the reality for Esther. But the temptation must have been there for her to avoid conflict, to avoid confrontation, to hope that the situation would just go away. How are you with difficult situations? You see, I think for many of us, I certainly find this, there is the temptation that comes along to say, the situation's difficult, I will try and avoid it. Maybe it will get better with time. I wonder how many of us ever feel tempted about that sort of thing. You know, because when I speak to people, so many say to me, I hate confrontation. Well, yes, most of us do. But situations don't go away by avoiding them. And there is a great temptation for us to just try and avoid certain situations. But it won't help. If Esther had avoided this situation and had done nothing, well, let's face it, she would have ended up dying. Mordecai tells her, your family will end up dying. He also says, it won't be the end of the Jews because God will raise up somebody else. But it will be the end for you. It will be the end of God in this place, in your family. And I think that's so often true about avoiding difficult situations. It's not that it will be the end of God's work. But it might seriously hamper God's work in that place at that particular time. We need to recognise that when difficult things come along, we cannot avoid them, much though we might like to do so. And I'm somebody who likes to do that. I like to avoid those difficult situations because, let's face it, they're painful. They're the sort of situation where you know you could be in conflict with people. It kind of, it makes it feel like the soap operas that we watch on television could come to life for us. You know, soap operas where people are falling out all the time when they're in conflict. And we don't want that. And especially we don't want that in a place like church. Of course we don't want it. But sometimes, avoiding difficult situations just doesn't work, doesn't help. We need to face difficult situations full on. Praying, yes. Seeking God, yes. But meet them full on and not try and avoid them. That's the first lesson we learn from Esther's life because she doesn't avoid the situation. She doesn't relish it, but she's not going to avoid it. She will do what she needs to do. The second thing is this. You can't always play it safe. Um, Thomas Watson was the founder of IBM and he said this, the way to succeed is to double your failure rate. The way to succeed is to double your failure rate. Or um, Thomas Edison, who said, there is only one good idea in a hundred, so I try to find the other 99 as quickly as possible. In our society, we're very bad at failing. We live in a success culture. Everything's got to work, and it should work, really, first time. 
we're not good at handling things going wrong. We want to find out exactly why it's gone wrong. And more importantly, we want to find out who is to blame for it going wrong. And once we've discovered that, the chances of us trusting that person in quite the same way again, well, it's not going to happen. We learn from Esther here. You cannot always play it safe. There are times when you have to take risks. For Esther, it was going to be a tremendous risk just going to see the king. You see, at that time, there were all sorts of assassination plots going on. And um, the king would have had safety plans in measure. And one of those would be that anyone who approached him without his permission would be killed because he would have his protective soldiers there who seeing somebody approach him would fear the worst for him and kill the person. So Esther, going towards the king, approaching the king without invitation, was a huge risk. And we see her, she recognises that, she knows that, because she says, well, I will go to the king, and if I must die for doing this, I will die. She is willing to take the risk. She is willing to fail because she knows it's the thing she should be doing. I wonder, how good are we at taking risks? How open are we to moving out of our comfort zones to a place where we may be called to do something that is really not what we would choose to do? I think this is going to be a very important thing for the life of the church over coming weeks and months. There are going to be many things for people in the church to do, many roles to fulfil, and perhaps people will be afraid of taking some of those on because, well, I'm not sure I've got the strength or the gifts to do that. But actually, maybe God might call you to do something that takes you out of your comfort zone. God may call you to do something and to fulfil a job that you may not have thought you were able to do. But who knows, maybe God has called you to this place for such a time as this. Because you could be the person who helps ensure that God's kingdom continues to be displayed in this place, that God's kingdom continues to move forward. Who knows, but that God might have called you to this place for such a time as this. And that doesn't mean to say it's going to be easy. That doesn't mean to say that everything's going to just fall into place just like that, like we might like it to. But, we can't always play it safe. Sometimes, we may need to take a risk. We may need to step out of our comfort zones to risk failure for God's kingdom. Not easy. Are you ready to do that? Am I ready to do that? Are we ready to take a risk for God? You can't always play it safe. The third thing is this. One person can make a difference. If you look throughout history, you see some of the things, some of the times where one person has made a difference. In 1649, one vote caused Charles I of England to be executed. That's the way the vote went. When they voted on it, just one person made that difference. 
1776, as legend has it, I can't find confirmation of this for certain, but in 1776, one vote meant that America chose the English language rather than the German language. One vote. In 1868, one vote saved President Andrew Johnson from impeachment. One vote can make a difference. One person can make a difference amongst many. Think about church history for a moment and think about all the people that we know of in church, of people who've made a real difference. Think of the names like Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, Spurgeon, The names could go on and on. One person who has made a real difference. We learn in this story of Esther, one person makes a difference. Esther is that person in this story. Esther is the one who's willing to take the risk. Esther is the one who steps out in faith. She's the one who's not playing it safe. She's the one who won't avoid a difficult situation. She's the one who makes the difference. We can be that person. It could be in this place. It could be in our homes. It could be in our workplace. It could be with our neighbours. We could be the one person that makes a real difference. We could be it, the person that makes a difference. Are you, am I, willing to be that person who will make a difference for God. Esther said yes, and she did. Will you and I be the person who makes a real difference for God's kingdom? But all of these things, the first three things that I've mentioned, the things about not avoiding difficult situations, not playing it safe, recognising that one person can make a difference, these things need to come from a relationship with God. Notice what Esther does, the reply that she sends to Mordecai. She says this, Go and gather all the Jews in Susa together. Hold a fast and pray for me. Don't eat or drink anything for three days and nights. My servant girls and I will be doing the same. Before she takes action, she prays and she fasts. Before she does anything, she needs to make sure that her relationship with God is exactly right. Not only is it her relationship, but she's making sure her servants do the same thing. Not only her servant, but her cousin Mordecai. Not only her cousin Mordecai, but Jews throughout the area of Susa. Coming together, praying and fasting to discover the will of God. To pray that God will intercede in that place. We've been talking about prayer this morning. The need for prayer. When I say we can't avoid difficult situations, you can't always play it safe. One person can make a difference. Yes, they can. But all of that needs to come from a place of relationship with God. It needs to be covered with prayer. The things we do, we don't just think that sounds like a good idea, let's go off and do it. We pray about it. We seek God's blessing on it. We seek to understand. We may fast about it. We're going to talk a bit more about fasting in a few weeks' time. But everything we do needs to come from a relationship with God. We learn that, we see that from the life of Esther. 
before she took action, she spent three days praying and fasting before she would actually go and see the king. Are our actions covered by prayer? By seeking God? By relationship with him? Because that's what we learn from Esther. And finally, remember, God is still in control. It might sound at this particular point in the story, with all that I said, with the edict against the Jews that they're going to be all killed, you might start saying, well, where is God? Esther's a fascinating book. God's not mentioned by name in it. But he's there. He's working through his people. And, as I say, do go away and read the story. It'll probably take about half an hour to read it all the way through. It's a, it's a really fantastic story to read. But through it all, through the difficult situations, through the bad day that Esther is having, God is still in control. God is still there. One of my favourite animals is dolphins. I really like dolphins. I don't know why, but I do, I do like them. Uh, one thing about dolphins, I don't know if you, you know, if you remember their colouring, they're, quite, they're dark grey on the top and have sort of silvery bellies. And there's a reason for that. It's camouflage. And the, uh, the dolphin, if it's uh, at the top of the water, on the surface of the water, from below, for any predators, if they were looking up, they would see the silvery belly and it would kind of blend in with the water all around them so they can't be seen. When it dives down, the darker grey merges so that they can't be seen from above either. If you're ever going into a place where there are dolphins about and you're on a boat in the sea and... Um, you, you soon realise that they can come very close to the boat and they jump up and it's wonderful, but they go down just a metre or two below the surface. You can't see them at all. Are they really there? You've no idea. And then suddenly they jump up and you, know, you get that wonderful sight of them again. Fascinating creatures. I sometimes think that's how it feels about God. You know, there we are going along and we see God doing something, and it's like the dolphins being out of the water, and it's fantastic, we've got this clear vision, it's wonderful, it's exciting. And suddenly, as they go back below the water, it's, well, where are they now? Are they really here still? Or have they gone away? And it can feel like that with God. Has God suddenly gone away? Has God disappeared because I can't see him anymore? And then suddenly, up it comes again, up comes the dolphin, and you know, just God's there again. And we go through that in our life, this peaks and these troughs of seeing God, not seeing God. But through it all, the truth is unchanging. God is in control. Through this story of Esther, God is in control in every situation, at every moment of the story. God is in control. God is using his people to bring about a happy end. Because, as with any good story, there's got to be a happy ending. And uh, I'll tell you, I won't tell you what the ending is, but there is a happy ending. And um, as you read the story, you may understand why I say it could quite easily be a pantomime story at Christmas. And part of me thinks, wouldn't that be wonderful that people were going to a pantomime and uh, seeing a story of God in that place? But God is in control. And we need to remember that. Can we remember that through difficult days, when things are not going as we want? when there are situations that we can't possibly avoid, where we can't play it safe, where we know we might be the person who has to make the difference. As we pray, as we seek God, 
may we know that he is in complete control. God is in control of this place. God will always be in control of this place. God has great things planned for this place. He is in control. And God will lead this place on and on for him if we are people who keep seeking him, who keep seeking a relationship with him, who aren't afraid of the difficult times but will face them, who won't always play it safe but will step out in faith. God loves a community like that. God can use a community like that. God will be with a community like that. May God help us to be that community, to be that people within that community, that we might give everything for his glory, for his kingdom. Amen. Let's just take a moment of quiet to pray, to reflect on what God might be saying to us. Thank you, Father, that you are in control of each and every situation. Each of us faces different things in our lives. Help us to know that you are in control. As a church, help us to know that you are the one who is in control of the future. That you have great things planned for this place. Help us to trust you. Help us to safeguard our relationship with you. That the things that we do will come through prayer, through seeking you, through our recognition of your supreme power, your supreme love. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our closing hymn, a wonderful words of faith. The chorus tells us, but I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me has been made known. Let's stand and sing together.
Now may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, be with you and those that you love, this day and forever. Amen.